This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The COVID phenomenon has obviously impacted all of our lives, and there's been a lot of thought about it. And I wanted to just reflect a bit um, as a physician on what I think I have been struck by during this pandemic, what it has reminded me of. It's not so much that the pandemic has taught us things that we couldn't have learned otherwise, but I think it's been, it's been a chance to be reminded of things that we can um, stop paying as much attention to when things are going along in an apparently uh, easygoing or, or um, untroubled way. So I thought of seven, seven things that the COVID pandemic teaches us about the role of medicine. And within med, or I should say connected to medicine, the place of science um, and the use of technology in the management of our lives. And the first is, uh, these aren't in a particular order, but uh, the first is that uh, the pandemic teaches us that medicine is a gift. St. Basil, back in the fourth century, in a, a little uh, message to the church, to a congregation, um, in something called the, his Long Rules, Long Rule 55, uh, addresses the question of whether it's fitting for Christians to uh, attend, uh, to go see doctors when they're sick. The, the question arises because people wonder, is this somehow... Um, not an act of faith. Should we instead be trusting God to, to heal us? And Basil ends up saying, yeah, you should make use of medicine, or it's certainly fine to make medicine, use of medicine. And he says, listen, medicine is like agriculture. It is a remedy for a deficiency of our human natures in the world we inhabit. That is a world after the fall, um, after sin has corrupted everything. And our condition is such uh, in the world we inhabit as human beings that we are always vulnerable to injury, illness, and death. And Basil says that God has given us medicine as, and the medical sciences, which of course were quite rudimentary in, their, in his time, um, but as, as a against those illnesses uh, in the way that he's given us agriculture because we have a tendency uh, to get hungry and to need food. Um, so medicine is a gift, and I think we see that in the COVID epidemic as we see um, heightened the concern that, that, for example, if we were to have too many cases, our hospitals would be overrun, that our medical practitioners and our medical capacities would, would be rendered, um, that would not be, be there to respond to us because they would be overwhelmed. Um, and that's a, that's a very sobering prospect, which I think helps us remember what a, what a gift it is that we have medicine. And of course, modern medicine gives us more power than any medicine, ha, uh, any form of medicine we've ever had before. That's one, one thing. The second thing the COVID pandemic teaches us or reminds us of is that death is an enemy, uh, even for those who are old. I think I've been struck during this pandemic by 
and I've been encouraged by this, but by how much um, public attention has been paid to, um, to those who are elderly, and particularly those that are in nursing homes. You know, most of the time when we're going around, going along in life, and you and I, um, we don't think about those people who are um, holed up in senior living centers, apartment buildings, nursing facilities. Um, we kind of go on with them out of mind. Um, and it can seem sometimes that, you know, when you get that old, you might as well just move on. In fact, most of us, when we think about getting old and losing our capacities and becoming weak and frail and having our friends all die and maybe even have our mind not work well, it's pretty easy to think, and I've heard many people say this to me, uh, patients included, that I'd, I'd rather just die at that point. But when you see people dying um, by the tens of thousands, um, and we see that COVID has wildly disproportionately affected the old and the frail, it, it reminds us that to lose them is, is to lose something good. And for them to lose their lives is, is, is an evil. Not the greatest evil, uh, but an evil nonetheless. A third thing that the pandemic teaches us uh, or reminds us is that medicine is a practice that is uh, meant to be in solidarity with those who are weak and disabled and vulnerable. So where, where do medical practitioners have their allegiance? where are our responsibilities greatest? You know, much as in Catholic social teaching, um, there is the notion of a preferential option for the poor, which uh, received particularly strong, um, um, uh, particularly strong uh, exposition or teaching within liberation theology in its various forms. And, and in Pope Francis's teaching has had a, strong place, that there's um, a special place for the poor in, in the economy of God and, and the kingdom of God. And, this, and that runs directly counter to the ways of the world. Um, and medicine, it seems to me, is a practice that kind of embodies at its best, embodies that preferential option, that that insofar as people are more vulnerable and more weak and more susceptible to illness and um, more hanging in the balance in terms of their life, just to that extent, physicians and nurses and other practitioners of medicine have responsibilities toward them and have a kind of solidarity with them. A fourth teaches us is, is uh, it teaches us that there is more to life than staying alive. Now, of course, we all know that here, um, but uh, the, the COVID uh, phenomenon and the effects of the lockdown, I think, have brought this really palpably to the surface. We can feel the loss uh, of being in the presence of friends, of sitting around tables and sharing food, of working arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, of playing in such a way uh, physically, actively, um, where we're uh, together. 
uh, whether it's playing basketball or wrestling or, or, um, or going to the lake together, um, uh, of looking over one another's shoulders and working on a difficult intellectual project, we, we, of being in church together and kneeling together and touching one another's uh, hands by shaking hands or, or um, uh, all of these things are of great value. And when they're taken away, you realize that life becomes um, deeply diminished relative to, to what we normally experience. And, and it brings up a, a challenge, which I'm, I'm going to speak about a little bit more as we go here. And that is that um, the, 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 the pandemic um, reminds us that health is good, um, which is why medicine is such a good gift, because health is so good, that death is evil, another reason why medicine is such a gift. And yet, a corollary uh, thing we recognize is that spending our lives trying to stay healthy and avoid dying does not seem like a way to flourish. Um, there is a way to spend too much effort on trying to avoid getting sick, um, to spend too much of our attention and put too much energy into um, reducing our risk of dying. And the lockdown, I think, has is, is brought that palpably to the fore. It's forced us to kind of ask ourselves, what are we living for? We mortal creatures who are who are um, hold our health very um, tenuously and partially and only for a time. Fifth, the the COVID pandemic, um, I think, exposes for us. It puts front and center for us uh, the way our fear of illness and death often makes us willing to give over to others a great deal of authority in our lives. That our fear of illness and death often makes us willing to give over to others a great deal of authority in our lives. Um, you know, this is something that physicians have to recon recognize and be faithful stewards of whenever we're caring for people who are sick. When a person wakes up in the morning with some severe abdominal pain um, or a person finds their loved one having a generalized seizure they've never had before or having a stroke, symptoms of a stroke, uh, the, the, the fear and the, the sense, the, the, the worry about further loss is so great. People come without thinking to a place where they don't know anyone namely the hospital, and they say, you know, take care of me. And they do what we tell them. And uh, they listen to us as healthcare practitioners, uh, name what's going on, um, and tell them what they must do if they're to be wise in going forward, if they're to get better. So there's great responsibility in that. And I think what's been striking in COVID is because it's a, more of a public health issue it's not so much we're running to the hospital as we've been running to uh, the state um, uh, to some extent and to, uh, to science. I'm gonna talk about science as number six here in some depth, but returning to someone uh, uh, and their voices ready to tell us, to tell us what to do to keep ourselves safe. 
that's not something we normally do in the same way. Um, and I think it, it shows how much we are worried about getting sick and dying. Um, and I'll just give you an example of this that's been quite striking to me during the pandemic, during my own, um, from what I've observed myself, paying attention to the hospital uh, where I work taking care of um, inpatients, particularly in the inpatient hospice unit. And that is for the first few months of the pandemic, in most hospitals, um, almost no one was allowed to visit those who were sick, whether they had COVID or not. If they had COVID, they're definitely not allowed, but even those who didn't have COVID. So we had for months on end a situation where I would go down um, hallways and you look in on patients and there's no one there. If people were allowed to come in, it was because the, their loved one was on the, the threshold of death. Um, or a child would be allowed one parent to be with them. And it was particularly striking for these folks who were very sick and had COVID. Uh, and I took care of a number where, except for the nurse who gowns up with the whole, we call the PAP or the, the uh, uh, forget how, what that sounds for, but it's the, you know, it looks like uh, the, uh, the suit out of uh, the movie Outbreak, if you've ever seen that. Um, the sort of spacesuit uh, uh, protective equipment, except for that nurse, no one actually goes into that room. And, and everyone else looks through the glass and um, family members can't come, uh, except again, at the very end when people are deathly ill, when they're often not able to even communicate with their loved ones. And pastors, I think this was quite striking. In most places, at least initially, pastors were not considered essential personnel and were not allowed to visit the sick. And that I think would have been unthinkable in the time of St. Basil. Um, uh, the notion that we're going to let time, scientific professionals into care, but not let in those who could give the sacraments and who could pray and who could minister to people spiritually. So let me, so the sixth thing that COVID teaches us, and this one I'm going to spend a little bit, of, a little bit of time on. By the way, after I get to these seven, I hope we have plenty of time for just some conversation together. I'm ready to take any questions you have um, about this topic or others. But, but the sixth, what what COVID has done, as um, as I alluded before, is exposed how much we've come as a people in late modernity in the North Atlantic and Western industrialized nations, we've come to turn to science um, as our best hope of overcoming our vulnerability to illness and death. And to tell us what to do and how to live. Now you, you, you hear, you, you see this displayed or expressed in the statements that we need to trust the science, we need to trust the scientists. And I want you to think with me um, about that a little bit. And let's ask what justifies our deferring to scientists or to physicians as the kind of clinical uh, practitioners of scientific technology, medical technology, medical science, what justifies our deferring to them regarding how we should respond to some threat in our life? 
This is really a question, a very important question, I think, uh, regarding the authority of expertise. Um, we go through life. I was just uh, this evening riding home listening to NPR, and, and there was just another one of those countless moments where someone says, experts say the following. Um, when should we, when we hear the experts say something, when should we consider that to have authority in our lives? And I'm going to propose to you there, there are three criteria, at least three criteria that need to be met, met for us to have confidence that um, scientific expertise in particular uh, is, is we should give, give it authority in our lives. And the first criteria is that uh, the scientists have knowledge about the threat and about possible courses of action we can take to respond to the threat that is not accessible to the rest of us. All right? They have special knowledge, not just about the nature of the threat, but about how to respond to the threat. And that knowledge is not accessible to the rest of us. Second, the scientists can guide us through at least one course of action that is likely to successfully protect us from the threat. And which, this is important, which we would not know of or be able to negotiate without their guidance. So they have not only special knowledge about the threat, they have special knowledge about a course of action that can reliably deliver us from or protect us from that threat. And third, the side effects of us doing what they tell us the unintended consequences of following the course of action that they are recommending are reasonably minor in relation to the good that they can help us obtain, or in the case of COVID, the harm that they can help us prevent. Or the, another way to put that is the good they can help us preserve our health, namely. So a paradigm case of this is uh, uh, in a place where I think it's, it seems eminently reasonable to trust doctors and trust the science is something like my, my older sister, uh, Marvie's, her name is Marvie, uh, colon cancer a few years ago. My, my older sister a few years ago was diagnosed with colon cancer and a big whopping tumor um, in her colon. And it was quite, quite scary, uh, as you can imagine, to be diagnosed with that. And so if you think about that, when that happened, you could, she, could, she probably didn't ask herself these questions in so many terms, but implicitly, I think what was going through her mind and ours is who has knowledge about the threat and possible courses of action we can take to respond to that threat. So who knows something about colon cancer and is likely to have special knowledge about it and special knowledge about how to get rid of that colon cancer in a reliable way without causing more harm? Doctors, it seems. Particularly doctors at a center for special, uh, a specialized center referral center. And then the question is, well, can those doctors guide us through at least one course of action that is likely to successfully protect us from that threat? Colon cancer of the type she had? The answer is yes. There's good reason to think that. Um, there was good reason to think that, that this kind of cancer might be cured. Didn't know that for sure at the time, but might be cured. And that to cure it, you'd want really specialized, highly technically competent care. And third, are the side effects or the unintended consequences of following the course of action that these scientists, these doctors would recommend, are they minor in relation to the good that they can offer my sister Marvie? 
And there it seemed again, the answer was clearly yes. Again, without certainty, but the side effects, going through an abdominal surgery, going through some radiation, having some side effects of that, feeling weak for a while, spending some money, um, having to be away from her family for a bit. All of that seemed, frankly, pretty minor um, in light of the, the good probability of her having her health preserved for a long time. And so she, I think quite reasonably, you know, went to a referral center at the University of Chicago and was treated for colon cancer. And thank God um, she has done really well since then. But when any of these conditions I've just described do not hold, then it seems to me we're not justified in deferring to scientists or physicians regarding how we should respond to a threat. Or I should say this this way, just as in, insofar as one of these conditions does not hold, to that extent, we're not justified in deferring to the scientists or the physicians regarding how we should respond to the threat. Because in such cases, the scientists and the physicians have only the pretense of, author of the authority of expertise. So let me kind of uh, uh, go through these. Um, I, I think a, a couple examples of this are medically, what doctors call medically unexplained syndromes. Medically unexplained syndromes are these things that patients present to doctors with, um, and these make up a big proportion of the conditions that patients bring to doctors. Things like pain syndromes, uh, musculoskeletal uh, diffuse pain of various forms, fibromyalgia, um, uh, and frankly, also things like relational challenges, marriage, child rearing difficulties, other issues that we have that are uh, for the body politic, housing policy, the proper level of fitness for a given person, getting along with ordinary back pain, or something like what to do about global warming. <clears throat> In each of these cases, um, even if at least one of those conditions does not hold or does not clearly hold. Um, if the scientists, the scientists either don't have really clear knowledge about what's going on with the phenomenon, or they don't really know of a course of action that's reliable to be able to deliver us from the problem, or the course of action that they know of is brings side effects that are not clearly, or that, that might be disproportionate to the very problem they're trying to fix. And, uh, And so that leads us to ask, well, what about COVID? I mean, if we think about COVID-19, what, what about this phenomenon? And I, I think here we see um, uh, an important distinction, and it's this. With respect to clinical management, so if anybody on this call or this Zoom session um, or anyone that you love gets a high fever and shaking chills, and starts to have difficulty breathing um, and takes a test and finds out you have COVID, um, it seems to me that you have good reason, just as my sister Marvy did with her, her cancer, you have good reason to go to the, the scientists, go to the practitioners of medicine, give yourself over to them and say, help me, tell me what to do. Uh, they do understand the virus in a way that you don't have access to. They do have at their hand, at their uh, at their uh, fingertips, 
technologies, medications, support strategies, uh, equipment, um, oxygen, et cetera, all kinds of things that they can offer you that you just don't have access to otherwise. And that are likely to be helpful, not for sure, but likely to be helpful. And the side effects of the treatment are generally minor in relation to preserving your life and health, particularly for a young, healthy person like yourselves. So in that case, I think we should have great deference to the authority of expertise for treating acute COVID in ourselves or people we love. But what about public health policy? You know, what about the whole issue of when to lock down and when to open up and to what extent? There, it seems to me it's not so clear. And uh, that it's not so clear does not mean I'm saying, oh, we should not have any rules. Uh, all these efforts are not making any sense. I'm not saying that at all. But I just think we have to appreciate how much we're dealing with a great deal of uncertainty. So what we haven't understood, particularly in the early months of the pandemic, haven't understood about this pandemic is precisely the kind of information we would need to make good judgments about public responses. We didn't know for months how many people had COVID, had already had it, had been exposed to it. Um, whether uh, having had it once gives you strong immunity and for how long, what the trajectory of dissemination would be, how much different lockdown efforts would impact the ultimate toll that the virus would take. Um, even today, it's not clear still how much certain levels of lockdown are, uh, how much increased effectiveness they have relative to other levels of lockdown, and particularly um, when we're looking at the number of deaths. Um, questions like how many visitors should you allow into a hospital room? Should pastors be allowed to come in? Should people be able to go to church in a socially distanced way? There's just not a, not a lot known about that. And so scientists have had to do a lot of speculating. Um, and they're often doing learned, informed speculation. I mean, people like Dr. Fauci, um, clearly, clearly a deeply learned uh, and deeply informed with all, that we, all the information that, that we have available but speculating nonetheless. And insofar as they're speculating, it seems to me that they have less claim to an authority of expertise about how we ought to live and what we ought to do. And we as human beings have um, less reason to sort of give over to, to the scientists, uh, 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 the authority to tell us what to do. Now, importantly, the unintended consequences of any particular strategy for responding to COVID are immense because they're being done across a population of, in the United States, 300 plus million people. Um, and they're immensely complex, so, such that it's, it, it's hard to imagine anyone having an authority of expertise about um, what the right policy is for the people in different areas. You know, is, is a policy that ends up preserving one life at the cost of losing 10 jobs a good policy? Probably so, but can't say that with any kind of scientific certainty. What about 10,000 jobs? Is allowing people to go to church or the restaurants, uh, is that a good idea even knowing that it may cost lives? There are no scientific answers to these questions. And that reminds us that science and the practice of medicine at their best are humble exercises. Um, and, and I, as a physician, have been thinking about this particularly as we're about to have the vaccine start rolling out. And uh, 
And of course, we've had all these lockdown policies, which are themselves forms of treatment uh, with side effects. But if you look back across even the modern history of medicine, when, when medicine has made efforts to reduce small risks across small individual risks across large populations um, by using a treatment across massive numbers of people, that often has had unintended consequences, unintended harms that have dwarfed the intended benefits. And um, we sure hope that's not going to be the case here. But I think about something like, for example, about 20 years ago, um, somebody did a, was working on a, uh, the idea of treating advanced breast cancer with bone marrow transplant. And they were doing this studies and I think initial study was, had some positive results and people who were dying of breast cancer were desperate uh, for another option. So they insisted on receiving bone marrow, can bone marrow transplant and they were insurance companies said they wouldn't pay for it because it wasn't proven. And there were lawsuits and insurance companies kind of gave in and started doing bone marrow transplant. And as it turned out, the bone marrow transplant did not work and that it hurt uh, many more women than it helped. Another example is estrogen replacement. We've known for, for a long time that women have lower risk of cardiac disease, age-adjusted cardiac disease um, than do men. And so, you know, people thought, well, what's different about women and men? Well, the estrogen for one. Um, and so it came up naturally with a hypothesis that why don't we keep estrogen going after menopause and that will reduce risks of heart attacks and strokes. So in a, in a very large study, um, tens of thousands of women were put on estrogen replacement and uh, it went on for a while and it became something that was kind of standard to offer women estrogen replacement until finally a study was done that showed, whoa, we are getting far excess of, of uh, complications, excess breast cancers, excess ovarian cancers, I think also thromboembolic disease, then we were saving lives uh, by reducing cardiac disease. So it seemed wise, didn't turn out to be. There are other stories, weight loss drugs, uh, the, the painkiller Vioxx. Um, the, the list can get kind of long, which I think should give us a humility about how any large scale experiment will actually turn out. And it means that when the vaccine comes out, um, you know, there's gonna be uncertainty as to what, how it's, how many people are going to be whether the people that are helped are going to clearly be um, disproportionate number to the people who are harmed. Um, and I'll just give you a, a, another little example of why it's sometimes hard to think about these things when there's the, when we can, when we have our in view, a particular risk, in this case, the risk of dying of COVID and people really do die of COVID. Obviously lots of them have died of COVID. Um, a, a family member, a young family member of a good friend died of COVID last week um, for me. But we know that COVID is far more deadly um, across the population on average than the influenza virus, um, uh, probably four or more times as deadly. And that sounds really bad. And yet for young people, um, you know, the CDC has estimated that for those under age 50, without significant comorbid disease, um, the risk of dying is about one in 2,000. One in 2,000, I mean, it's still a lot. I'm not going to make light of that, but that seems a far less uh, 
you know, risky than talking about this being four times more dangerous than, than the flu. Um, particularly when you think about something like the fact that um, your risk of dying of some kind of accident this year is about twice as high as one in 2000. It's about one in 1100, according to the Insurance Information Institute. So if I told you that your chance of dying from COVID is about half as likely as your chance of dying from an accident this year, then that would probably lead you to not feel so much in, as much anxiety toward that as you might if you're just focusing on how this, there's 200,000 people who have died from this. Okay, let me wrap up here um, with uh, this, this, on this point. Uh, the, the notion that we're gonna let the scientists decide, I think trains the public in an illusion. It gives us the sense science is directing us. And, and that suggests often that if there are dissenting voices within the scientific community, that somehow those voices are not scientific. Um, and that happens in medicine quite a bit. I, I remember uh, about 15 years ago, back when the emergency contraceptive pill was only available by prescription and the F Food and Drug Administration was considering whether to make it available without a prescription. So um, uh, in, the, in the pharmacy without a prescription. And um, there was a big, there was a dispute and among the advisory panel, the majority opinion was yes, definitely make it available, it's safe. The minority opinion was no, it's not safe uh, because it hasn't been studied among this certain population of young people, particularly like 15 years old. Well, George W. Bush was president and the decision was made by the director of the FDA to not allow it to be available over the counter. And there were a series of um, editorials written expressing outrage that this was an example of politics trumping science and we have got to listen to the scientists. And this is uh, a, a terrible example of ideology corrupting what should be a professional, um, 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 unbiased consideration of the matter. And I and a colleague wrote a, wrote a, a response to some of this, but just making the point that, there, that the scientists actually, there was no dispute about the science. Um, in the end, everybody agreed about the science. They just agreed about how to interpret the science. They agreed, one side looked at the general safety data and said, it's good enough for me. The other said, well, um, if there's not been data among you know, teenagers, then, then that's not good enough. Um, and of course, they're bringing different valuations to those judgments, but science is not what's making the decision. So similarly, with respect to COVID, I think we, we should not say uh, that science is going to tell us what to do. Uh, what science is able to do is give us some information and perhaps some tools that we can uh, take into account in deciding what to do. Um, and then we have to say something like we, those who are ever making a decision, you as a member of a family, as a part of a classroom, if you have a position of leadership, the leaders of Baylor University and Duke University, the governors of our states, et cetera, have to say something like, if we're speaking honestly, taking into account the following scientific data, the following recommendations and following arguments from these people, um, as well as uh, my own consideration of the following goods, um, I or we are choosing to pursue the following approach. That's a more honest account of what we're doing. And let me, now I'm gonna close. But the seventh thing I think this, this has reminded us of is 
is that in the end, uh, despite the extraordinary resources of modern medicine, modern public health, and the bureaucratic and highly um, uh, powerful uh, modern state, we have little control over the hour of our death. Uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 um, said, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so love, so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So, uh, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? Um, it turns out that's not just some kind of moral um, exhortation, although it obviously is that. Um, he's speaking a kind of, Jesus speaking a spiritual truth, if it's true. And of course, Christians believe it is. Um, but it's actually speaking something quite true practically. And this is something I've spent quite a bit of time studying uh, in recent years. Um, it turns out that unless we're sick, I told you about earlier, if you get sick with COVID, see a doctor. Unless we're acutely ill or acutely injured, um, there is not that much that medicine can do to, uh, to keep us healthy for the long term. Um, put differently, we see all the time in medicine the sense that, that we can control the risks of our dying. So, for example, if you have high cholesterol, the notion is put forward that if you take these cholesterol-lowering drugs, it's going to reduce your risk of heart attack by 30%. Um, uh, and yet what's not told often when, uh, when that in, in those moments is that what we often don't dig into, what does that actually mean? And if we dig into what that actually means, we realize the number of people who are actually going to die of heart attacks, which is a minority, um, and how long we have to take this drug to get a 30% reduction of that small number. We end up with something like the following. Um, if you will take this drug for 10 years every day and put up with any side effects of it for 10 years every day, then maybe there's a one in 50 chance that it will benefit you. But there's a 49 out of 50 chance, 98% likely it's not going to do you a bit of good. That's true across a number of issues. And that's true with COVID because for most people, not for the elderly, but for most people like you and I, um, whether we get uh, uh, the things that we're trying to do to prevent getting COVID are not really that likely to help any given one of us. The, the hour of our death is largely outside our control, notwithstanding the promises of science and medicine. That doesn't mean we, have to, we should be fatalistic, much less does it mean we should be um, callous and, uh, uh, and ignore the needs of our neighbors. But I don't think it chastens our confidence in medicine and science to save us from our mortal condition. It, I think, lets us to return to a, 
um, putting our hope where hope is better grounded um, for creatures like us. I'll stop there and see if, uh, see if we can have any conversation you guys want to have. There it goes. Ah, there is Levi Durham. Go ahead. Unmute yourself and go ahead and ask your question. Uh, all right. Yeah, first, thank you very much. I really enjoyed that, especially um, over the past week or so, I've been thinking a lot about um, deference and the kinds of experts to whom we should be showing deference and when it's appropriate to be showing deference. And uh, one of the things I guess I've been thinking about in particular was if I am not in a position Okay, so say that there's an expert and they're more or less doing, uh, they're speculating, you know, given their background knowledge, given the evidence that they have in front of them, and they are trying to come up with some suggestion for, um, for action. And I, it seems like if I am just so in the dark, I don't have their background information, like I don't have their expertise, uh, to, do you have any advice on like how to navigate how much deference we ought to show when they're actually suggesting courses of actions, which are going to be laden with their own values, um, you know, with their own ethical considerations, um, epistemic considerations, and they're, um, they're kind of extending just beyond their expertise, but they're still drawing from sources that I don't have. Um, so in, I guess in regards to the pandemic and to um, legislation that's being passed or executive orders that are on right now. Um, do you have any recommendations on how to kind that's, of- That's a great question and it's a difficult one. I, I um, let me just say a little bit uh, that, uh, and hopefully this, hopefully this will be helpful. Um, it does, it seems to me that you want to start with the question of whether they, this group of scientists has um, plausible authority of expertise uh, in the area where they're, they're suggesting they do. And sometimes it, it, that takes a little bit of scratching the surface. So for example, to take something like um, global warming, um, that the earth is getting hotter, seems to me um, uh, a phenomenon that climate scientists are well positioned to assess. And they have ways of measuring that and uh, that I don't have access to. Um, and so when people who've been studying climate tell me the earth is hotter, I, I, I start with the assumption that they probably, I should listen to that and take that seriously. Um, when someone says we need to do, uh, we scientists say we need to have X policy um, to, to stop, uh, to reduce our carbon emissions, then my confidence goes down because I know enough to know that any kind of public policy is going to have all kinds of um, intended and unintended side effects. And, um, and those are things about which scientists, I know being in the world of science, often don't understand. What we tend to do is focus on the problem in front of us, the thing we know, like the fact that the world's getting hotter, and then relatively ignore the things that we don't know as well. I'll give you another example of that. So I've kind of given you examples of where I think there, there's, there's been good reason to be skeptical of the claims of science. Um, uh, another one was when I was coming through medical training, um, actually toward the end of my residency training is when hit the work hours movement. 
So in medical training, ever since, um, there was a kind of steady, over the course of several years, there was a ratcheting down of the number of hours doctors were allowed to work because there were a number of studies that found that if doctors don't sleep for about 25 hours, they start to lose some intellectual performance, believe it or not. They start to get a little slower. They start to make a little few more mistakes or at least be more prone to making mistakes. They start to actually have difficulty recalling things. And so, and then they go to about 30 hours. They really, you know, that gets a little worse. And then there were a couple of cases where patients were badly harmed and, and at least a couple of cases died because of mistakes of very fatigued doctors. So what is a scientist? So therefore immediately you have all this, these claims that the science is clear. We need to have work hours reduction. Well, and it occurred to me then, um, and it has occurred to many more people 20 years later, uh, I mean, I'm not the only one then, but it's it sort of dawned on them that there's, when you start changing work hours, when you start telling doctors you can't stay in the hospital all night, you have all kinds of other effects that, you, that those scientists weren't pay paying attention to. So you had a complex problem, turns out. The problem is something like we want to train physicians to take care of patients well in a relatively brief period of time so they're not training forever and ever. And part of doing that is, is um, watching disease develop when it's worse and making decisions. And also um, another area of error that snuck in was that it turns out when doctors work shifts and sleep more, they're handing off patients back and forth. And every time you hand off care of a patient, you introduce error. Uh, it's one of those things that once you step back and think, well, that's obvious, we should have known that, but that was just disregarded because it wasn't under the scientific microscope. So those are a couple examples. And then I think when you move into areas, so the more complex the, the, the thing is, the more humans that are involved in it, the more that there are all kinds of inputs and outputs, the more skeptical it seems to me we should be of the claims of the scientists. Um, because scientific knowing is not terribly good at understanding that kind of complexity, human complexity. Um, and the more that we can, that we're, we're talking about something that can be known through scientific modes, the more we should be uh, prone to defer. Um, and the last thing there is, is um, you know, if an area is controversial, um, that should be a flag, I think, to just were, be skept, a little skeptical about claiming someone under the mantle of what science says. You want then, if there's controversy, you want to hear the argument and assess for yourself whether that data is being handled well. Does that begin to answer your question, Levi? No, that's very helpful. Thank you. Uh, hi, can you read it for me, please? I hear you very well, Gabriela. Yeah? Okay, yeah. well, hello. Um, oh. I'm joining you from Costa Rica. Ah, que bien. Ah, speak Spanish. Sí, claro que sí. Sí, claro que sí. Perfecto. Voy a tratar de hacer mi pregunta en inglés y si no, la hago en español. Okay, muy bien. My question is, well, I'd like to know, what do you think about the lethality of COVID-19 and ethnic racial differences in the U.S. and how this relates to a discussion about values and ethics? Well, that's a great question. I, I think that was very clear, Gabriela. Well, okay, uh, thank you. You know, I, frankly, I should have put, I should have had eight, eight things that teaches us, um, and, and really this should have been among the top three, and that is it teaches us, um, uh, it teaches us that 
when things go bad in a public, they, they almost always go worst for the poor and for those on the margins. Um, so I think particularly striking in the U.S. has been the differences by, uh, among Black Americans um, who've had um, at least an order of magnitude more, you know, more risk of dying than white Americans. And why that's true seems to me a little complicated. Um, it involves, it seems, higher incidence of comorbidities, of diabetes seems to be, uh, you know, comorbidity that, that uh, makes a person more vulnerable to dying from, from uh, COVID-19 and African-Americans have higher incidence of diabetes. Um, but it, it also probably reflects um, all kinds of systemic um, things that um, result in African-Americans on average having um, less access to good medical care and um, uh, and so that that's a problem I'm struck here at going back to Christian tradition um, you know in the Old Testament there's a, a kind of um, uh, a, te a, um, a tetrad if you will of the widows orphans aliens and the poor um, people that God continually emphasizes that he he cares about and that his people must do justice for. And it occurs to me that, that when someone is widowed or orphan or alien or poor, it's not just that they're vulnerable to injustice, but uh, more often than not, they've already suffered quite a bit of injustice and that's partly how they ended up in one of those conditions. Um, and so, um, so that I think, as with the elderly should lead us to a preferential option for and a particular solidarity with people who are at those higher risks. And that's where I think we should put more resources. Thank you. Thank you. So is it okay for a priest to give someone dying of COVID last rites in the hospital, uh, taking all the necessary precautions of suiting up, et cetera, then celebrate Sunday Mass and distributing communion the next day with a mask? Wow, what a great question. Um, you know, um, I have friends and colleagues that have been drawn into some of these questions. I know the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops has tried, tried to think through this clearly is also on a local level. Um, folks have been trying to think through this. Um, Here's the thing. There's not, again, a scientific answer to this. Um, there's enormous uncertainty here, and this is a matter of to what extent you want to manage risk. In terms of the data, uh, you know, seeing a person in a hospital on day one uh, with due protective equipment and then going the next day to celebrate mass, um, we know it's unlikely that, assuming the, the priest has bathed in between, um, that they are going to be, have caught COVID and be passing on COVID to others. We can't say that there's zero, absolutely zero risk of that, right? It's, it's not a zero risk. So this gets down to where the question of how good is it that the priest be able to celebrate mass and then is that risk disproportionate to that good, which is a classic way of reasoning in Catholic tradition, um, along with something called the rule of double effect. Um, 
And uh, my disposition would be to say, yes, uh, that it's important enough for us to be sharing and for Christians to be sharing in the body and blood of Christ that um, as long as we are keeping the risk low, um, that's an acceptable risk. But, you know, that's, I, I think that's a place where reasonable people can disagree. Rachel Heerlin wants to know, have you ever fallen into the trap of interpreting someone as an expert when they were in fact not? Um, I'm wondering if there's a story behind that for Rachel, but um, interpreting someone as an expert when they in fact were not. Oh, social media. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I mean, I, I'm sure I have, I, I'm not having a, a, an example come to mind, but, but here's the danger. Well, well two, one thing is I, I am, as you've already picked up, I've become deeply skeptical of people's making claims in the, in the name of science. What, what I want to hear is an argument. So when a scientist says I'm supposed to believe something, I want them to explain to me why, you know, here's what we know. Here's what we found. Here's how we extrapolate. Here's what we don't know, but here's why we think this is likely to be the case. And therefore, this is why I make the following recommendation. Um, and because sometimes those, those arguments are really strong and sometimes they're not very strong at all. Um, I think the, the primary place that we see this is not so much a person, for me, that I can remember, it's not so much a person putting himself or herself forward as a scientist and turning out not to be one as it is journalists picking up on the interpretations of a particular phenomenon that they find compelling and then reporting them as what the scientists say. Uh, we see that all the time uh, about disputed questions where they'll say there's scientific consensus is or experts say, and usually if it's an area of controversy, um, the fact is there are different experts who say different things. And that's problematic when we hide that. I will say this, though, a caution tale for skeptics like myself is that I also am prone to uh, believe the things that people are saying that I want to believe, that, are, that, are, that align with the way I like to think about the world. And I catch myself sometimes uh, um, not taking seriously something that in hindsight I realize I should have taken more seriously because I didn't want to hear a certain idea. So Marion has followed up and asked if, if the priest is unlikely to be contagious the very next day, if the priest did contract COVID from the dying individual, how many days does it take to become contagious? Um, good question. Um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's in the order of several days before you start to disseminate virus particles. And of course the challenge is um, people are not all uh, symptomatic in the same way. The fact that priests are on average pretty old in the U.S. Um, means that, you know, most priests are going to get pretty sick if they get COVID, or can anyway. Gabrielle, you asked about the precautionary principle. Tell me what you mean, what, what you're thinking uh, about. Yes, thank you. Uh, I was thinking about Marian's question. 
And uh, thinking about this uh, principle that is very important in environmental ethics, the precautionary principle. So it is useful, could be useful in a situation like this, like the example um, about the priest, could be useful to apply. Yeah, I mean, may, yes, may, I, I think so, but it, I, I think it can cut both ways. And so, you know, insofar as we, um, uh, the precautionary principle being that if it's interpreted as um, uh, that, you know, take the, when there's uncertainty, take the route that's the safer route, right? And particularly when the consequences of choosing the wrong route could be grave. Um, um, I, that, that generally makes sense, but um, when, the, when the medicine, when, when, when whatever it is that, that's the precautionary route is relatively unburdensome, then I think that makes sense. You know, put your seatbelt on, for example. You know, well, the chances are every time you drive your car, you put your seatbelt on, it's probably not gonna do you any good. Um, it may not do you good for 30 years, but what, it's a small thing, put it on. If you have a crash, it could really be helpful. Um, but, but when the suggestion is don't drive your car, um, then the, because you might crash, then the precautionary principle starts to seem like it's becoming um, unduly burdensome because driving a car is the way we get to see people we care about. It's the way we get to work, et cetera, et cetera. And so similarly in this case, if the precautionary principle leads to the priest not celebrating mass and God's people not being able to participate in, in, um, in, the, in the Eucharist, that's a big loss. That's not just like putting, if the priest is putting on a mask, that to me is like put the seatbelt on. If the priest is not going to celebrate because uh, he interacted with someone um, and has, even though the risk is small, might have some non-zero risk, that seems to me to take it too far. Oh, and then Marion asked, um, I know a priest that won't go to the gym because he doesn't want to put his congregation at risk. Is he being overly cautious? Um, no, that to me seems like, well, I mean, that seem, seems to me like a good example of of uh, char charity in action. So what's the priest, if you think about it, what's the, I would guess what, what the priest is intending is, uh, it's important to me that I'll be able to care for the people. It's important to me that I'd be able to offer the sacraments. Um, it's also important to me that I'll be able to work out, but those people and their good, and the people of my parish and their good is more important than my being able to work out in the gym. So I'll, I'll do push-ups at home um, I'll give up something good for me to, to care for others. That, that seems to me right. I actually have a question. This is Burke speaking um, sure, Burke. about the information flow. So it seems like one of the problems you brought up was uh, that we see journalists and uh, public figures saying, well, scientists say, experts say X, Y, and Z when they cite like, a single study that may not even show the result they claim to show. Um, are there any ways to, how you help yourself or how you might recommend us filtering through the information to uh, discover the arguments um, or when somebody is just shouting um, you know, science as an authority without backing up why this is a case where they ought to be a good authority? Um, um... Well, I'll just give you, I guess, a couple examples. Um, 
the when you know in early in COVID when there was uh, and of course everybody was confused looking back and realized we you know most people didn't have a clue how to we didn't know how to clue how to respond to this it hadn't happened in any of our lifetimes and but then pretty quickly of course people were frustrated with each other and you start to have claims about what scientists say and experts say and so on I have had training in clinical epidemiology I'm not a that's not the area of my focus, but I've had training in clinical epidemiology in order to understand how to read population-related data and make inferences from it. So, and I also have a disposition, as you guys have picked up, to be sort of skeptical of claims of scientific certainty where I'm, I, you know, where I'm, got a good reason to think that certainty might not be nearly as solid as, as proposed. So I started, you know, so what I've done is I've gone and looked at the data. Um, I mentioned to you, you know, looking at the data on uh, risks for people in different strata and then trying to look at corollary risks of other things so that I can, I can calibrate the risk of COVID against other kinds of risks that we live with all the time and have gotten used to. Um, so that helps me make what I take to be better judgments about with my own family, what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. Um, helps me give counsel to friends who are wonder if they should ride in the car with somebody, you know, to this place and then maybe see their grandmother or not. Um, so it, it was digging in a little bit to rather than hearing scientists say this, there's a fivefold greater risk of this say, well, what fivefold of, you know, five times what uh, is the number and how great is that risk in the end? And how much information do we have? to base our conclusions about how we ought to respond to that risk. Um, so it's digging in where, where possible. And again, whenever, if, if there's an argument, if you know in the media that there are two sides um, uh, and people are arguing about something, that's when you should just not trust what, what people's claim of what science says. That's where you have to actually go and say, tell me, like, what's the argument? What's the data they're working with? What's the argument they're making? And then if you don't understand that data, try to find a scientist who seems to be making an argument that holds together that, that you can follow. We have another question from Marion. Marion asks, when vaccines become available, would you wait until a sizable portion of the general public gets it first? And if there's more than one type, how do you choose? This is gonna be, this is gonna be, this is gonna be a wild ride friends for the next 12 months plus um yeah so i'm i'm, I'm hesitant to say something here that i'm going to be recorded and quoted as and i'm going to turn out to be terribly wrong um so i i will just say that um let me give you another let me give you another anecdote um, I, I believe in vaccines. My kids are all vaccinated, all the usual vaccines, um, except a couple. I want to get into those too much, but I've been, um, I have not been particularly impressed with the HPV vaccine uh, as uh, particularly compelling for young women, um, at least not for my daughters. And, uh, and that has to do with a number of factors, the way it was marketed, um, 
the fact that you can follow cervical cancer with other means, that cervical cancer is just pretty low, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but when I was a kid growing up in a little church in West Tennessee, our youth pastor and his wife had a little baby boy, beautiful baby boy. Um, I'm blanking on his first name right now. Um, but uh, at about um, a few weeks, that baby boy went in to have his polio vaccine. And, um, and within 48 hours, he was completely paralyzed. Um, and he turned out to be one of the kids whose reaction to the polio vaccine, which caused a severe autoimmune reaction in his central nervous system and, and essentially left him almost locked in I mean, he was just paralyzed except for a twitching one eye. Um, and I don't know if he's still alive or not, but he's been living on a ventilator uh, ever since. Um, uh, it was one of the, his case was one of the ones that led the United States to stop using the live attenuated polio vaccine. So now we switch back to the old SOC vaccine, which is a killed vaccine. And so it was a case where what happened was people started to realize that we're having more kids severely injured by the vaccine than we are having of the, of the illness itself. So that change was made. The challenge with COVID is this, you know, we, we vaccines typically take a long time to develop. We're gonna have a few vaccines come out that develop pretty quickly. They're gonna be used by large numbers of people. Um, um, you have to treat a whole lot of people to pick up a small, uh, to pick up a, an adverse reaction that only happens one in two or 3,000 times that the vaccine's given. So I, I think there's going to be reason to kind of hold off for people who are healthy. If you're healthy, I think there's going to be good reason to not get the vaccine initially until, um, until we see that it doesn't have, you know, undue numbers of adverse effects. One of the vaccines I just saw a couple of days ago has had a couple of cases of transverse myelitis, which is a very serious, uh, again, nervous system effect um, that can lead to paralysis. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see how those pan out. On the, on the, on the other hand, if you're at high risk of dying from COVID, if you're elderly, if you have immune compromise, then I think you take that risk, you take the vaccine to me, obviously, because even if the risk is one in 2000, it's the risk a whole lot worse than that if you get COVID and you're likely to get COVID. Okay, uh, well, if nobody else has a question, I uh, have a, a bunch of them, uh, but I'll just, uh, I'll just focus on one, uh, which is a pretty uh, schematic question. I'm just wondering uh, what, what Catholic Church teaching um, has to say about what kinds of um, sacrifices we should be willing to make in order to avoid contaminating people, especially with regard to the economy. Um, and this is something that you touched on, the principle of double effect and how you can have sort of foreseen but unintended consequences of uh, uh, going to restaurants, you know, patronizing, uh, you know, supporting businesses, uh, this sort of thing. Um, and uh, I guess I'm just wondering, yeah, what, what Catholic church, what the concrete conclusions um, might the, might Catholic church teaching support in the way of uh, how much we should be willing to sacrifice in order to uh, avoid contamination and when should we um, start to be more concerned with uh, you know keeping the economy uh, uh, up and running and you know keeping uh, helping people to keep their jobs and, and this sort of thing 
Yeah. Um, well, this, this is, this is one of these areas of difficult prudential judgment. So, I mean, I, one of the things that's been a feature of Catholic understanding of moral reasoning is that you have, you have, um, you have some things that you certainly can't do, right? You can't intentionally harm people. You can't go out there trying to get people infected. You can't go out there trying to get people to lose their jobs. Um, you have to aim at, at that which is genuinely good. And you shouldn't accept side effects of your actions if those are disproportionate to the good that you're, you're, you're the genuine good you're seeking. But there are different goods always available to us. And so two obvious ones here are um, you're trying to preserve or protect the health of someone else. So you wear, so you don't go to the restaurant because you don't want to get people sick. Uh, you don't want to bring home a virus for your own children or your family members. And that all of this should be motivated by charity, of course, by, by a genuine concern for others, not just a self-protective stance, although con being concerned for your own health is also reasonable and good. Um, but then there's another good, which is uh, you want to support the business owner because she has worked so hard to develop that restaurant. And it is good that people may be able to go out in places and share, break bread together. And so you want to go to the restaurant. And so, and so you have to ask yourself, but is the side effects that I have an increased risk of picking something up, bringing it back to my family or, or whatever, is that disproportionate? These are hard judgments. And this is, I just don't think there's anywhere close to enough certainty to give people hard and fast counsel. The things that have been made hard and fast and generalized are the things that are, um, like I said before, with like putting on your seatbelt or wearing a mask they are um they're simple and they are for most people things you can do while still doing most of what else you do but but beyond that the question of whether you go to a restaurant or not whether you go to somebody's wedding or not whether you have a small group over to study the bible whether you you know tutor a friend who's struggling in a class by you know sitting next to them um whether you go to mass, these are, um, these are hard, hard judgments. And, and in these judgments and uncertainty, the church has got a lot of respect for allowing the individual who's in the position who has to make that judgment, namely you, to do your best, right? To give you things to think about and give you the freedom to do your best in making those judgments. Uh, one other thought on that is the church has a strong, you know, I mean, also a place for, although we're, we're not to follow authority beyond um, um, authorities beyond the scope of their authority. If someone is giving us a directive within the scope of their authority, like if the president of Baylor tells you, don't get into, you know, don't hang out in each other's dorm rooms. I don't know if they're saying these kinds of things, but, and they have, and that's within their scope of authority. Then you, that gives you a reason not to do it, even if you don't agree with it. Hey, thanks. That's a very helpful response. And um, well, do we have another question here? It looks like uh, Marion may have. Yeah, Marion has another question. Um, so her, her question is uh, to follow up on the vaccine question. I've read that new mutations of COVID are coming up. Could that mean that by the time a vaccine is out, it won't work on the new mutation? So I think Marion needs to be a doctor if she's not already. Um, but, um, 
the answer is, of course, that yes, that's that's a that's a serious worry. Uh, I actually don't know the latest on whether they're finding, you know, to what extent they're finding mutations. But with all viruses, you know, all viruses tend to mutate over time. We the flu, as you guys know, is not the flu. It's a family of, of viruses, uh, influenza viruses that are mutating constantly. And so every year's vaccine is a mixture of the prominent strains in Asia um, that are sourced uh, months before knowing that typically the flu moves from Asia to the U.S. in terms of temporality and, and, it, and it's given here and it's never a perfect match. And the next year it's got to be something else. So that is a worry, is that COVID will become as endemic as the flu and yet be uh, more deadly than the flu. But it could be that once we've had it all a few times, five years from now, that we all develop a kind of immunity to it as well so that we're not affected as much um, by subsequent infections.